Crypto Watch is presented by theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every day my writing and podcasts put the financial world into context with a focus on the issues that matter. Join us today. It's only a dollar for the first month. And now it's time for this week's Crypto Watch. Alan Kohler here with this week's Crypto Watch, and I'm delighted to be talking to Sophie Gilder, who heads up the Blockchain Centre of Excellence within the Commonwealth Bank, which recently, and she headed up recently, the um, uh, mandate from the World Bank uh, to launch a blockchain bond, or at least a bond of Australian dollars um, issued on the blockchain. Um, so I thought we'd better talk to Sophie about what they're doing within this blockchain centre of excellence, how the bond works, and what the what what are the implications for other securities such as company shares, and what does she think about the future, not only of blockchain but of cryptocurrencies? So uh, a fascinating interview with Sophie Gilder, the head of Commonwealth Bank's blockchain centre of excellence. Well, Sophie, obviously you uh, and your blockchain centre of excellence at the CBA burst into prominence when the World Bank announced that uh, they've uh, uh, engaged you guys to do a bond for them. Before we get into that, I'd just like to know, um, when was this set up uh, and uh, you know, how long has it been going and what was the purpose of it? Sure. Well, we recognised um, uh, as a bank a few years ago that blockchain could be quite a significant opportunity or alternatively a threat and we wanted to really understand the technology so we decided that we'd set up a team with um, engineering skills and business skills to apply blockchain technology and other adjacent technologies to real world problems in order to develop a deep understanding so for about three years now we have been working on a variety of different use cases and um We've done about 20 proof of concepts in a variety of different areas, exploring what the pros and cons of applying this technology to develop new solutions are. And so this uh, World Bank bond is really the culmination of uh, several years of, of work and, and building capabilities and expertise. What about yourself, Sophie? Were you brought in to, to run it or were you already at the bank? Well, a few years ago, I first read about blockchain and I had this light bulb moment thinking this could change everything. So my background is as an investment banker, actually, not in technology, but I was just fascinated with uh, the impact that this could have. And I have a capital markets background. So one of the first projects that I worked on just on secondment was in, related, uh, in relation to capital markets. And um, basically, after joining the innovation lab, I, I never wanted to leave. I get to learn new things every day and um, work with a really engaged group of people. So I ended up staying, setting up the uh, blockchain centre of excellence, and um, uh, we continue to grow and expand. What was the innovation lab and, in particular, the blockchain initiative? Uh, and your appointment was that all? Was that all sponsored directly by Ian Nareb, the former CEO? Ian was our, our key sponsor in terms of um, uh, allowing us to do ground up or um, grassroots innovation. I guess in, in terms of um, investing internally to develop expertise. Um, we were actually established by Kelly Bayer Rosmarin, who reported into Ian. Right. Okay. And, and when you say just just to finalise on your own background, when you say you're in capital markets, this is at the CBA or somewhere else? 
Oh, a variety of banks in the past and most recently at, at CBA, yeah. Yeah, right. And so, um, uh, so for three years or so, I think. So what have you been doing? Um, and cause, because what, what interested me about the World Bank's press release on the subject is that there was some, they, they recognised uh, CBA's global leadership in this area. I mean, that's from a standing start, that's not too bad. What did you do? <laughs> I guess we... We don't consider it as a standing start. We've been working extremely hard on um, uh, uh, deploying this technology in a variety of ways, and so. Um, about well, I mean a standing. I mean, I mean a standing start three years ago. Oh uh, well, I guess it's not a standing start if you've already got um, great engineers internally, and we also have a significant number of. Uh, we call them entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurial folk working within the innovation lab who are used to uh, applying design thinking, coming up with new ideas to apply technology and uh, problem solving. So I guess you bring all of those skills together and it's not really a standing start. And when you've got the strong uh, imprimatur of, of senior management, um, there's plenty of impetus to get stuff done. Um you said in the uh, you were quoted in the press release to, as to the effect that um, uh, you think that uh, it's got the potential to revolutionise financial services and markets. What do you mean? <laughs> yes, it's a bold statement, but um, the thing that really struck me when we did this uh, project with World Bank was after we built the platform, which is really an orchestration platform which organises the activities of different participants in the market, it really struck me how much time we waste just trying to get on the same page and reach an agreed set of facts. So the way that the markets operate today, um, particularly debt capital markets, which tends to be over the counter, is that there's an enormous amount of manual work, rework and reconciliation. So you have a copy of something, I have a copy of something, we call each other, we check that we're on the same page, we send a Bloomberg chat, we send emails. In some instances, even faxes, um, in all in order to reach an agreed set of facts. If you instead have a shared ledger that you can just point to, this digital record which is synchronised globally and which is an agreed set of facts, it just makes commerce much, much easier. You don't have to waste all of that time. You have a much lower error rate. You have a higher degree of trust. So as an efficiency engine in terms of coordinating commerce, I think it's incredibly powerful. So... Um, at its core, that coordination of different parties, I think, can be applied to many, many different markets. So I think that's really the revolution, having a shared, agreed set of facts. So, so what exactly has been involved in you building capability in this area? Well, internally, we had to bring together a diverse set of skills. So you need excellent engineers and We've got um, what I believe are some world-leading engineers, not just, not just in the blockchain space, but who have um, capability to build front-end right through to back-end. They're great problem solvers, and they're really good at applying their knowledge to, to new spaces. So they're both creative and rigorous in their approach. But that's not everything you need. You also need all of the business skills to understand the problem at hand and work out what a potential solution could be. So we also have uh, user experience experts who are brilliant at understanding 
what people need, how they want to interact with the technology, what works and what doesn't. We also do a lot of testing in order to um, take an evidence-based approach that what we're building in does indeed work. And in addition to that, I think we've really harnessed the enthusiasm for new technology and new ways of working across the bank by building what I call a, a virtual brains trust. So we have um, colleagues who have expertise in law, risk, compliance, regulatory areas, security, and all of them have brought their diverse expertise to bear on the projects that we have underway. So they contribute their area of expertise. They also learn about the technology. And so it's really a win-win. I'd say it's the diverse teams that we've brought together that have really enabled us to build new things. Sounds like you've got a decent budget. Um, any sign of Matt Common cutting it? Actually, we do things extremely cheaply because these are virtual teams. So a lot of the people that have contributed to these projects, they're doing this by finding time for the project because they're passionate about it. So in actual fact, in terms of the direct headcount, it's quite a small number. And then what we do is we bring in expertise from across the bank and they're effectively finding time in their, in their busy day to contribute to it because they're passionate about it. So I'd say that we've done most of this uh, in, a, in a very efficient manner. And anyway, the World Bank deal would have uh, done, gone a long way towards protecting you, that's for sure. So can you tell us a bit about the, uh, what, what, the, what you're doing for the World Bank exactly? Yeah, sure. So for a start, I'd like to say it's very humbling to work for an organisation whose um, raison d'etre is to uh, to solve world poverty. So we're delighted to be working for an institution that has such a grand theme and, and we, we really want to contribute to that. One of the things that the World Bank's done over the years is they've used their international standing to act as a catalyst for innovation, in particularly in capital markets. They've got a long and proud history of being the first to undertake many things, like they were the first green bond, they were the first interest rate swap. Um, so they see this as the latest in a long line of using their influence and their global reach to push forward new ideas and make things more efficient, with the end game being that if they can get greater efficiency gains, they can do their job better and have, a, have an even greater impact globally. So they're not just interested in the capital market space. They're also interested in, for example, making uh, global trade more efficient, being able to source goods ethically. They're interested in digital identity for refugees. There's all sorts of applications of blockchain beyond what we've done that they're interested in. But as a starting point, they wanted to explore whether utilisation of blockchain could make capital markets more efficient. And... That's what we started uh, doing with them about eight months ago now, exploring what the legal structure could be, what the technical structure could be, what the advantages and disadvantages could be, and then um, also started engaging with some key, large, sophisticated investors in the Australian market who also get their feedback on what we're building. Because importantly, we can't build something that just works for one entity. It's got to work for the whole ecosystem. So that was probably one of the key complexities in building this, that you have to make sure that all of the participants using it, coming from their different perspectives, can gain significant advantage from the platform. But balancing all those needs and interests has been uh, a, a challenging but really satisfying process. 
So um, the bond is called the bond I, which I thought was very cute. Um, uh, how does it differ from an ordinary bond? So the way that it really differs is in the primary market when the bond is first um, advertised for sale and the bids are captured. That is all done in a digital format. So instead of how it works today in over-the-counter dealing where a bond is launched, which means that a variety of different news sources will let investors know that it's happening um, and then they will call a salesperson at a bank who's acting as a lead manager to dial in their order, this is actually straight through processing. So once they're onboarded to the platform, the investor can see on their dashboard what is available for sale that day. They can submit a bid immediately, which is then captured in the background in this blockchain. So you can think of the blockchain as the vault of information with a timestamp traceable to the individual who submitted that. So like a normal database that's shared between different entities and traceable down to the individual level. So we've got this audit trail behind which is capturing all of these activities. Um, you then have a real-time book build. So the issuer, World Bank, can see as these bids come through. Um, there's no translation between different entities and passing on of information delay. Instead, it's just real-time. When they choose to allocate, when they've got sufficient bids, they can then all do, do all of that digitally. And at the press of a button, you have the final allocations of the books and then um, post-settlement, uh, those investors are the owners of the bonds. Now, for this transaction, we actually did the payment, not on the platform, but external using existing uh, payment mechanisms. But in the future, we would hope that we could also do the payment through the platform. So, so does this potentially disintermediate the whole process? It definitely has potential to streamline some of the actions that are undertaken by intermediaries. Over time, I think it's easy to forget why the intermediaries are there. Originally, they were there because they were fulfilling a role uh, because one party couldn't trust another or perhaps because they built, brought a unique set of skills. They often uh, expanded their roles due to the complexity of markets. So it's too difficult, for example, for an investor to do all of their reporting and, and be across um, all of that. And so instead they outsource it, for example, to uh, a custodian. But over time, those intermediaries' roles, instead of becoming more and more efficient, have probably grown and grown and grown, which is a way of dealing with complexity. You effectively subcontract certain roles. We think that we've now got the opportunity to rethink some of those processes, but I wouldn't say that it's quite so simple as it disintermediates anyone, everyone. Instead, it can be thought of as a tool, which means that uh, you reduce some of the complexity, you have faster and more efficient processes. So it could be thought of as a tool for some of those intermediaries, but I think it certainly strips back the bureaucracy and admin that has built up over time because there's new ways of undertaking transactions. There's more direct transactions that can be undertaken. There's, for example, in the reporting space, Arguably, if you've got access to a real-time platform which is trusted and you have the information in front of you, reporting becomes a thing of the past. You have 24-7 up-to-date real-time information. So your report is the dashboard that you can see. 
So things like that, I think there's, there, we're, we're due for a rethink of exactly what value intermediaries add. Why do we actually need them? And I think we can, from first principles, rebuild some of those roles such that they're more streamlined, more efficient, and hopefully we can strip out time, cost, error, and risk. Is it correct to say that the bond actually exists on the blockchain? From a legal sense, this bond is actually issued under the existing legal documentation of the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development that the World Bank uh, uh, utilised for this bond. And it's actually a standard legal structure uh, in line with existing Australian bonds. So there is a register that exists separate to the ledger. So I'd say the blockchain here is your audit trail of all activity your coordination of different parties, your direct bid capture, but your legal right to be repaid exists in a separate register, which is kept by the, um, by the agent for the bond. So this is what I describe as a hybrid structure where you're using the technology to better coordinate activities, capture information, build an audit trail, um, but you are retaining the actual legal structure, which means that investors can get can readily get more comfortable um, with the structure. We made that decision because we figured that that would be more palatable to investors. In the future, we could move to uh, the blockchain platform being more all-encompassing, but we think that this is a good step towards that future state. What did you learn doing this process and thinking about both the hybrid structure that you've mentioned and the, the future um, potential for the way it might work in, in the future. Uh, what did you learn about what could happen to all securities uh, on the blockchain? And in particular, I'm thinking about company shares. Yes, yeah, so you can see a future here where ownership of securities generally can be more direct. You don't have to have them held by intermediaries on behalf of someone else if you can deploy the right structure and the right security and protections. So instead you can have investors that have a more direct ownership in the underlying securities. You can certainly make the trading of those securities and the reporting on those securities more efficient. From a regulatory perspective, you can see that in the future, regulators will be extremely interested in this technology because they'll have, if you like, the bird's eye view of what is happening as it happens. They won't be trying to regulate markets looking in the rear view mirror getting reporting, which is um, after the fact. Instead, they'll be able to see it as it occurs. Um, another interesting fact about um, the management of security markets that you can see would work in the future is you can build into the fabric of blockchain the rules for uh, how for example, the security can be traded. So it might be appropriate for investor A and not investor B. You can build into smart contracts on the blockchain related to a particular security, the fact that investor B is not allowed to buy this. So if investor B tries to buy this, it will fail a precondition and the transaction can never go through. So that sort of level of intrinsic regulation you can build into the fabric of the market I think could be really powerful for setting guide rails and making sure that securities are um, bought and sold in the manner which was intended. 
So I think it'll be actually a, a huge protection for investors and a, and a boom for regulators and should lead to greater efficiency of markets. Um, in terms of the payments and settlements, you can see that in the future, if you could tokenize money and instantly settle on blockchain, so the blockchain dollar um, have instant delivery versus payment for the blockchain asset or security, uh, that would have a significant impact on the market in terms of eradicating settlement risk and reducing um, post-trade uh, delays. But we can't yet do that today. So that's only by, to- by tokenized by, by tokenized money. Do you mean using a cryptocurrency or or um, putting the existing fiat currency on blockchain? So you could do either. There's problems with cryptocurrencies though because they're incredibly volatile and um, it is difficult to know exactly the source of, of that money. And for these um, markets that we deal in, we need to know all of the parties that we're dealing with. So we're talking about um, private permissions networks rather than open blockchains. Um, in, in order to make the payments suitable for sophisticated investors, I think you really need to have the token linked to a, a fiat currency, a central, centrally issued currency, rather than a decentralised cryptocurrency because the volatility and, and, and lack of trust means that it's just not suitable at this time. Um, but we don't yet have uh, these centrally issued blockchain dollars that we can use today. We may in the future, um, and that's um, something that we're interested in exploring. We've already built the technology to enable this to uh, occur, but um, as I think is the right approach, technology moves really fast, legislation um, uh, moves a little slower, as it probably should. So we're not yet ready, I think, for the um, Australian dollar to be put on blockchain, but you can see that in the future, it would be extremely useful if you could indeed do these instantaneous settlements of, of trades, which we can't manage today. I can't help observing that feared currencies are also volatile and a lot of people don't trust them too. <laughs> Depends which country you're in as to, as to your views on that. And that's why people have different views as to the value of uh, decentralised cryptocurrencies, depending on whether they live in Venezuela or the United States, I suppose. But I note that you you said that you're using a private uh, uh, blockchain. I think I think uh, it was a uh, you've used Ethereum, a private Ethereum permission network. I, I'm, uh, does that have any implications for the use of Ethereum in future? No, not really. Um, so we have a setup where we don't, for example, need to use Ether to um, uh, to pay for each trade because it's a it's a private instance or it's a consortium instance, I should say, because it's run by both World Bank and CBA. And in the future, we hope to build out that ecosystem. I guess the implication is that um, for the Ethereum protocol, it's a relatively mature protocol in the blockchain space and allows us to do what we want to do in terms of building smart contracts. So it has the flexibility that we're looking for, but we're not wedded to that particular technology. Um, We're very open to using any kind of blockchain developments that that occur in the future and indeed we're constantly assessing the market to work out which is best of breed and i think that'll that'll change over time probably the perfect blockchain doesn't exist today um, but we hope that it will 
exist in the very near future. So everything we build, we use the best tool for today, recognising that in five years' time we may be using something different. Do you have an opinion about the future of the cryptocurrencies and um, Bitcoin and the jostling that's going on between them? We watch it very carefully. Um, obviously, Bitcoin was the, the genesis of this whole idea. It's my view that whilst um, money on blockchain or a form of currency on blockchain is somewhat interesting, it's just one case, just one thing you can do with the technology and maybe not the most interesting thing. Um, I think it'll develop over time. People will grow in their trust of it. Um, uh, we don't yet recommend that people, for example, invest in it because it is so volatile. But we, I find it um, personally a very interesting thing to watch the machinations of that and the ICO um, market as well because I think that whilst there's a bit of chaos to start with with these new innovations, um, fundamentally they offer uh, greater flexibility and could be highly influential in the future. So they may not be there yet, but we're watching very closely to see how we can learn uh, from the fundamentals and how we can apply them to, to other areas. It's, it's a fascinating space to watch, an incredibly fast developing space. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's an exciting place to be in. Does it does it feel a bit to you a bit like uh, the beginning of the internet itself? And if so, what year do you think we're in? <laughs> yeah, well, I wasn't alive when the internet was first developed because um, I understand that that happened back in the sixties between academic institutions, and for many many years was only used between those different academic institutions. So it wasn't really until the nineties that the killer app of electronic mail came into being and suddenly people went, oh, I get it. I get why the internet is really, really useful. And since then we've had, of course, an explosion and today we couldn't imagine life without the internet. I think that the development here will be a little more rapid as it already has if you compare it to the early days of the, of the internet. But I think that um, uh, we'll know that blockchain has really made it when we don't talk about it. It's just sitting in the background reshaping how we interact with others in the same way that we don't really see the internet today we see the apps that make our life easier easier sitting in front of it but today blockchain is still early days people are still trying to wrap their head around the technology rather than focusing on what it can do and how it could change business structures government structures human interaction um, i think we're still probably five years from really widely um, deployed commercial applications. Um, I say that because some of the most promising use cases that I'm aware of, for example, in trade, will take a long time to get the ecosystem to shift to the new technology. There's no silver bullet in terms of legacy systems and costs to move to new systems. Um, and then in, a, in a 10 years, I would say that it will be sitting behind many of the systems that we use, influence, influencing the way that uh, commerce occurs. And it won't really be a topic. It'll just be there. It'll be accepted. This is a bit of a Dorothy Dixit to, to end with, Sophie. But um, do, do you think that uh, what you're doing is a reason to be optimistic about the future of Commonwealth Bank? <laughs> of course. But it's not the only reason. 
Um, there's a lot of people in the bank that um, are working, you know, really, really hard on lots of really interesting and innovative uh, things. And I guess I'm really lucky that I get to focus on the future state and an exciting area. But um, I think there's plenty of reasons to, to be very positive about uh, the future of Commonwealth Bank. Good on you, Sophie. Thanks for talking to us. That's a pleasure. Thanks, Alan. That was Sophie Gilder, the head of the Commonwealth Bank's Blockchain Centre of Excellence. And now it's time for this week's Crypto Watch Market Wrap with market commentator Saeed Sadawi. And news this week includes the US Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, has issued rejections for three Bitcoin-related exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. Proposals from ProShares, Direxion and Granite Shares all saw simultaneous dismissals this week. The SEC, however, stressed their decision did not mirror any underlying evaluation as to blockchain technology and its investment. In the wake of impending competition from tech giants such as Samsung, the cryptocurrency mining behemoth Bitmain has released a new water-cooled ASIC miner titled the Ant Miner S9 Hydro. Similar to its air-cooled S9 counterpart, the main advantages water-cooling offers over air is a reduction in both noise and energy, making it a more cost-effective choice suitable for large-scale mining operations. In the wake of community concerns to scalability on September 1st of this year, Bitcoin Cash enthusiasts are planning on undertaking a global stress test. Participants here are encouraged to transact on the Bitcoin Cash blockchain simultaneously in an attempt to test its ability to handle a large volume of transactions. Another interesting development out of Bitcoin Cash, this time a debate over the protocol's development which is signifying divergence within its internal team. On one side, Bitcoin ABC and their opposition Bitcoin SV, led by the infamous Craig Wright, has sparked much community interest as there's a clear level of accompanying hostility shared between both sides. With rumours of a potential hard fork on the cards to allow each side to continue development as per their vision, this would trigger a divergence to the blockchain causing a secondary token to be issued. Ant Financial, a payments affiliate out of the internet titan Alibaba, father to one of the largest blockchain projects out of China, NEO, is pegged to launch a blockchain-based app to tackle the globally recognized issue of food fraud. Initially targeting rice sales throughout China within the popular Tmall e-commerce platform, users here will be able to track all information relating to the food's origin while leveraging blockchain technology. And finally, some interesting stats out this week. Bitcoin is currently hosting more transactions than gold. Commonly referred to as digital gold, since the second quarter of 2017, it's been reported Bitcoin has been settling more transactions volume in volume than its physical counterpart. And now onto the market wrap-up for the week. A relatively strong performance throughout the week, with most projects bouncing very hard from their prior week lows. Optimism is once again in the air. Indicative of a recovery, we've benefited from a 10% or US $20 billion injection in market cap throughout this week alone. While BTC dominance has remained stagnant at 53%, alts have been the major beneficiary from this increased liquidity. Paving the way for the increased capital was, however, Bitcoin breaking out above US $7,000 for the first time in over a fortnight, representing an almost 10% gain in this week. The market has regained a sense of enthusiasm, particularly in the wake of the ETF denials not triggering a much-expected sell-off. Suffering from continued strong buy volume, many of the top 100 alts have seen anywhere from 5 to 100% gains in this week alone. 
Notwithstanding the market holding a strong sense of optimism, it's important to note we're still within our long-term downtrend. And unless Bitcoin can convincingly break above the US $8,000 mark, it's likely this bounce will be just that. A bounce. And the majors Ethereum, Ripple, Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin have, like the rest of the market, seen a lovely week of green, each up on average 7.1%. And that's all for the weekly wrap-up. I'm Sayed Sadawi, and I'll see you next time. Crypto Watch is presented by theconstantinvestor.com. Our theme music was written and recorded by Broke for free.